Welcome to A Medic's Mind. How are you? Hopefully you're well. How's your weekend going? I'll tell you how mine started. I uh, I came downstairs and I realized that I must have neglected the cat box for a couple days. Uh, we have a couple of cats, cats with us that live here. A couple of great little kitties. One's big and fat. The other one's, you know, handsome but an asshole. And, uh, and I came downstairs and I realized that um, there was a protest. Uh, what I mean by that is they had shit in a perfect circle. It looked like a, like a shit seance, just this completely perfect circle of shit, <laughs> like, I, like a circle pattern of poo. And I'm like, I've never seen this before in my life. And I was mesmerized for a second. But then I realized the big fat cat was kind of just sitting beside the litter box, looking at me like right in the eyes. And he goes, yeah, no, this is your fault. This is on you, buddy. This is your fault. Now look at my asshole. And then he just turns around and walked away from me. And I was like, oh, all right. I mean, I guess that's a thing that's happening. <laughs> so I rectified that situation. That's how my weekend has started. Uh, also, I think I'm coming down with a cold again. Oh, man, I hate colds, especially uh, with what's going on in the world, you know, because uh, you never, like, it's the symptoms are so similar. You're just like, oh, no, great. I have COVID. Shit. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> So uh, yeah, I have an episode for you. It's actually an interview episode. Uh, it's not a it's not a read. It's uh, it's an interview. An interview I have with a guy. His name is Philip Man Montreal. Uh, so Montreal being that's where he's from. Uh, so Philip Man, um, he he and I met on a on a Facebook group called Canada Rights, and uh, it is I believe owned and operated by the CBC, which is drastically unfortunate. And I will. Uh, elaborate more on that um, throughout the podcast, but uh, he and I met there. He's a he's a writer. He wrote a book called Dark Muse. It's available on Amazon right now. If you'd like to check it out, uh, it is a fiction book. Um, I've read it. I've had the privilege of reading it. It's a good book. Uh, it's a fun book. It's an entertaining book, and it's also um, the kind of book that like uh, the characters are very complex. There's some some layers to the characters, and I think that's really um, something I look for when I'm when I'm reading fiction. And, uh, and it, it hit every single thing that I like in my fiction story. So I'd, I'd recommend it. I'd highly recommend going to check it out. It's by Philip Mann. It's on Amazon and it's called Dark Muse. So please feel free to head over there and check that out and, uh, be sure to leave a like and comment if you can review, uh, I would help him out immensely. Um, but Philip and I kind of talked about, um, having an episode together because he and I, uh, generally, uh, I think we're on the same page, um, when it comes to sort of how we view the world, the, the kind of prism we look at when it comes to uh, how sensitive things can be. Um, on this writing site that I belong to, a lot of times people will ask questions on if they can write something. They'll say, hey, I'm writing and uh, my character in my book is disabled and also a person of color, but I'm uh, you know, not a person of color or I'm not disabled. Can I write about this? And then it starts a shitstorm of, uh, you know, people chiming in with their opinions as well as, uh, you know, just casting vituperations against the people and castigations and all kinds of stuff. It's um, it's an entertaining site to be in. It's a vexating site to be on. Uh, and Philip Mann usually um, fills me with a lot of entertainment because he just doesn't care what you think. He's going to give you his opinion. He's going to give you uh, how he thinks. And he's going to just, he is who he is. And I love that about him. And so I was thrilled to have him on the podcast and thrilled to sit here and talk to him. We talked for almost an hour. Uh, so that's kind of cool. Uh, pretty, pretty excited about that. Um, so yeah, you may not agree with everything that's said in this podcast. Um, it's literally just a conversation podcast. It's a colloquial exchange between two guys, uh, you know, two guys sitting around a table 
you know, in the new COVID world, he's at his place in Montreal. I'm here on the West Coast. Uh, so, but I, I had a great time talking to him. I hope you guys take something away from it. It's a little lighter than uh, what I'm uh, used to uh, to promulgating on this. Um, I'm getting some stuff ready for December. Like I said, I got some stories uh, that I'd like to uh, to release throughout the month of December that are Christmas themed. So this episode uh, is just uh, with me and Philip Mann. So again, Philip Mann, uh, published author. He's on Amazon. If you want to go over there and check it out, Dark Muse, feel free to head over there and check that out and see what you think. But in the meantime, this is episode 184, and this is Philip Mann. I went through this before, you know, about a year ago. Remember that? Oh, yes. Yes, I do. Yeah. <laughs> for, the, for the enlightenment of the, the reader, the listeners, this is about around the time that Don Sherry affair, when he said, you people should wear poppies and stuff. You know, right. Don Sherry is never one to be careful with what he says. You know, whatever no. pops into his head, he says it. So people talk about you people meant foreigners or not, not born Canadians or whatever he meant by it. And it, it, it went on and on. I guess they had a point. Sooner or later, you, you know, your act wears a bit thin. And so I, I said, um, well, I got tired of it. So I said, anybody want to talk about sex? And of course, some people joined in. And I showed some of the stuff that I'd written in the book. And it was sort of a, a rough sex scene. Okay, It was consensual. Like that both parties walk into it. Right. And some people didn't like it. In the morning, I went to it. I had 80 comments on it. 80. Yeah. <laughs> and um, they weren't that nice. And some, some one, one person called me a pervert and not in a nice way either. Yes. Yeah, I do recall. And so I, I, laid, I was on parole for a couple of weeks, and I, I was cautious about things. I, I think I managed to step into things here and there also. But it's very – it's like we're going back to the like back to 100 years ago. We can't talk about certain things, you know. But as much progress as we make, sometimes it's like you're in a big um, merry-go-round. It goes back where you started from. Well, that's just it, right? I think that for me personally, um, you know, I – when I look at the identity politics and I look at specifically how that Canada rights site is run, um, you know, they, they allow for degradation and for insult of, uh, certain groups. So you can talk about white privilege all you want. You can invalidate somebody because they're white or because they're Judeo Christian, uh, or even male, a lot of male bashing goes on in that site. And that goes, yeah. that goes, uh, went, untouched. Yeah. You know. I went, I went, there was one person there, he, I don't think he'll mention names, so I won't, but he usually got very crude in her nerves, and people start calling her out, and I think people start complaining, and then she sort of halfway apologized to me, and now I don't hear from her again. Yeah. And uh, she sort of reached out in one of my columns, one that I think I was writing about, and uh, we went to the debate again, and I figured, no, it's not worth bothering anymore. Yeah. And I mean, well, you that's... Know, but, uh, some, but they'll... It's hard to convince... The thing is, it gets so so nitpicked and so, you know, it's like you have to go to get a university degree to figure out if you're being insulted or not. And that, it comes to that. Well, you know, we really shouldn't, it's, you're getting a lot of people upset about nothing. Most people can, I, like somebody reached out to me, uh, one of those people on, um, sent me a message uh, a couple of hours ago. About uh, hate speech and such. Yeah, yeah. So I sent her a copy of the uh, with the criminal code. Okay, how difficult it is to define hate anything. Yeah. And who gets to define what it is? Who gets to define what's hate and what's not? What's proper language? What's not? Like yeah. I told her, uh, I'm Jewish, and I see where I keep out here. And I was like, hey, kid, I remember people is once a month usually yell Heil Hitler at me. Okay. Now it's too much of a wimp. It's too much of a to, to, to get into a brawl with them. But that's hate speech, okay? Absolutely. That's hate speech. In your face, as bold as you can get. But if somebody just disagrees with you, like disagree what identity is all about, that's just, I disagree with you. Like uh, Jordan Peterson does. He disagrees and he's pretty courteous. Yeah. He doesn't, he doesn't think people should dictate how they should or should not refer to somebody. They, he or she covers it, okay? Right. And you try to bend people's language to some new diktat or some new uh, way of thinking. You know, you know, people don't like being pushed around and told what to do, what to think. No, exactly. And I, I find that uh, on that site, specifically the Canada Rights thing, a, a lot of arguments stem from just diction. You know, they, they all want to police language. They all want to police different things that, that are said. And when it came to this Jordan Peterson thing specifically, 
uh, everyone was talking about how he's, you know, uh, a far right wing, uh, you know, hate speech, transphobic, and so on and so on. And they used all the buzzwords. Well, the phobe, yeah, the phobe tropes. thing. Yeah, the phobes or fear this. It's not phobe because I, I don't have much time for it mostly. Oh, exactly, you know, right? I've, I've seen some, some of his uh, videos. You know, he's very extremely articulate. He's and he goes out his way not to insult people. You know? Yeah, he's but, a very eloquent but, speaker. Yeah. And uh, I... I I've ahead, actually I've actually read his book. I read the Twelve Rules yeah. for Life. Um, now, personally, on a personal, I didn't really like it. Uh, the way he writes is fine. Like the way he's very eloquent, just as he is when he's writing. It's just more so. I kind of I I have my own beliefs and ideals of of what I think. Um, you know, interactions between men and women are, and he has his own beliefs, and we're at odds with one another. But that doesn't mean that I think he's wrong, or that I am better than he is, or that he should shut up. Right. He's got he articulates his points very well. And I find as long as you can do that in a respectful way, you should be allowed a platform. You should be allowed to talk. I, like I have zero issue with it. Yeah. Nobody could tell. Nobody could tell me who I should or should not listen to. Exactly. Um, when you try to take, like, I remember a long for I'm 65 now. You can tell. OK. A long, long time ago, I was home watching Wi-Fi vote. And uh, for some reason, on, on the uh, I must be on 10 or so. Something came up about uh, some prison guy complaining to a police officer about, uh, about you know, homosexual activity in, in prison. You know, not activity, you know, force, all right? And my father happened to be passing by that time, and he called, well, I said, don't you listen to that? I don't want to hear that in the house anymore. Well, I'm not, I'm not uh, 9, 10 years old anymore, and these people are not my parents, okay? Mm-hmm. I listen to what I want, and if I want to go to listen to, to hear him speak, I will go listen to him speak. Absolutely. You know, anybody I choose. And that's and if he's telling me that that uh, he shouldn't be he should be censored, well, is your argument so weak that he has to be censored? And is that's, that the point of your of your your uh, tirade that he that we or that I'm not smart enough to uh, to understand what he's saying? Exactly. Let me figure that out. Let me figure it out on my own. Exactly, and that that's a lot of the art, like a lot of the things that I run into, a lot of my uh, irksome kind of. Uh, vexations towards Canada rights. A lot of what I run into is that that censorship, that just black and white, uh, bold faced censorship. You know, they they talk about colonialism quite a bit uh, in the. Yeah, I, um, I got it's unbelievable. You know, every once in a while, you have this thing with the Turks and Caicos Islands. You know, yeah, they yeah. Come, they want to become part of Canada because we have great Medicare and we have uh, liquor stores all over the place. I yeah, guess. yeah. But so, so I made a joke about it. So somebody said colonialism is not cool. And I thought, <laughs> uh, come on, tone it down a bit. Tone it down. First yeah. of all, the, nobody's going to do it. No one's going to force them into anything. And it's a, it's a, it's a running joke we have here. Sure, you know, yeah. Canada as a whole does have a sense of humor. No, For sure. The country, and and the other thing, too, that people seem to miss a lot of when it comes to the nuances of, of those discussions is it was a different era. It was a different time back then. And of, when we take today's moralities and today's lessons and we transpose it atop of figures of the past, of course it's going to look horrible because we've oh, learned and grown yeah. since then. I got. A, I just finished reading a book, uh, "How to Hide an Empire," by Daniel uh, Emerwar. and it's a fantastic book. It, it got it, makes, it puts me to shame. He has over seven hundred citations in the book. Okay, uh, right. he for eight years. You ever hear of it? I have no. I'd love to. I'd love to check it and out. And he talks about. And then he talks about how America started. Start was a small country. They took advantage of basically they, they ripped this. The Spanish were, were, were ailing and they're you know becoming uh, you know, past their prime. So the U.S. ripped their country, their colonies away from them. And what's interesting is that one time, one time the U.S. had the option of annexing the Dominican Republic. They, they wanted to become part of the U.S. Because you know it's a big, growing country, strong, and certain and the U.S. didn't want because they had too many, too many blacks there. Right. Didn't want them to become part of the country. So, so it was a strong thing, but they they grew out of it. Another, and that these are people in office. Oh yeah, you know, racism was a blatant thing there, but they slowly slowly grew out. They evolved out of it. They're still trying hard. I don't think to do it by you know, talk about white privilege every other day. But they're still trying to legislate it into a small, small corner, then turning the lights out on it. Right. You know? And I, I, it goes back a long time, but and it's an evolutionary process. You can't force absolutely. on people. Yeah, you know? absolutely. It's a huge evolutionary process. And I, and I, By the way, how many, this, how many bases do you think the U.S. has around the world? How many military bases? 
Oh, geez. It's it's in the, the hundreds of thousands, I would, or the hundreds, I would think. 800, 800 yeah. icons, 800. Yeah, like, bits of bits of land in the middle of middle of the South Pacific. Yep, you yeah, got yeah. it right. About eight hundred. Yeah, and they're giving up a lot, also. Yeah, good press. Who got none? Yeah, right. So I mean, and and the thing is, like they they usually <clears throat> the same crowd that that touts the colonialism and the the white privilege and the military industrial complex, all those those common tropes. They they generally only argue at it from one side without looking at the nuances of the total picture. You know, yeah. like I can fully concede to the fact that uh, marginalized sects of our community have unique challenges and they face unique uh, circumstances that on the average, the slash middle class slash, you know, uh, everyday individual might not face. But to say that the total of those people face those total same issues simply by being that color. Well, there's no basis for that. It's 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 absolutely erroneous. And even when I hear <clears throat> there's this, uh, they talk about the, the bootstrap thing is out of Aotearoa. Some of them do it. Some people who have various problems or visible minority or other, you know, I think they do overcome the odds and and get to accomplish something. Absolutely, you can't take that away from them. No, it's not easy. I can't. It's not easy, but it is done. It's done. You see now a lot of. Uh, African-Americans and black Americans, whatever you want to call them, they, they're in politics in the States. They're in power. Yeah. yeah now, they may not be even because you have a lot of them still uh, have problems. Again. Sure. I know what driving a while black is about, okay? I, I, funny thing, I've seen, I'm, I'm not, it happened to me once or twice too for the silliest things. Yeah. I got, <laughs> it was a story. I came out a while ago. I was going to the, I went my walk late at night about 8 o'clock and it was dark. Cop car comes over to me and cuts me off on the sidewalk. On the sidewalk, okay? And he says, good evening, so where are you going? He says, um, where I'm going to. Uh, where do you live? And gave him the address too. Um, I said, what's this about? Well, somebody is reported that somebody robbed a depreneur around here in the prison with a limp. You know, I have a bad limp. And I, I thought, well, you know, God bless you, you know? Because somebody said I was let go because I gave the right, a quick answer to where I was going and where I was living. But as, as, as in a way, I thought it was a joke. And I'm, I'm 64, then I was 64, and I, I was pulled over by the cops where suspicion of robbery wasn't, you know, I don't get that too often. Yeah. But I'm almost like when you can once in a while be pulled over for no real reason. Mm-hmm. That's an issue. That's an issue. Sure, yeah. But not all not all white people are police. Not all white police are on that do that either. No, exactly. You know? And I, having been on the inside with respect to being a first responder, uh, you know, working with police and and going to a lot of those same things. The one thing, and I'll I'll concede and say this is completely anecdotal, so it can't be used as as fact. But right. my, in my experience, what I found was that the people that were uh, you know, even if they were disgruntled, if they were compliant and they were somewhat courteous to, to the officer or to the, the firefighter, to the paramedic, they had a much easier time in deciphering what the real issue is, as opposed to somebody who's saying, well, why do you need my ID? Why do you need this? Because then the cop has to fa- spend so much time, you know, trying to justify why he is the authority in that moment. To somebody that yeah. just feels like they're entitled to walk I away. I remember times. I remember times in the city when I heard cops being shot. They're not caught completely off guard. Okay, mm-hmm. they really don't know what's going to happen when they when they pull you over and uh, ask for your ID. I remember the times uh, where the guy is the last day on the job and somebody got shot. You know that is the end of him. Or somebody else uh, he pulls over some guy. A cop pulls over somebody bike and the guy gets into a fight and takes a guy. Cops gun and shoots him. Yeah. Guys that off later for or an unbelievable only in Quebec. And I thought, yeah, these guys are in a risk and my, they go whole life, whole career, nothing happens, but something happens and then that's it. So I understand that they're on edge, you know? Sure. And, and the the other part like too situation. Exactly. And the other part too that I find, especially the legacy media like CBC and, and these other outlets, that they fail to do is they fail to humanize the police officers, you know, but they always humanize the victim, generally speaking, especially now when it comes to um, being able to label that person a minority of some kind, they they very drastically uh, paint that person in a much higher light than what that individual may have been currently like actually presented in and living within. Whereas with the cops, it's always the same thing. You know, uh, white cop shoots black teen or 
uh, white cop pulls over uh, Latino family or whatever the case is. But they never actually take into account that this is probably the first time this police officer has ever shot somebody. That's very, very true. It's very true. And they have to, you know, go home and live with it. But they never talk about that. And they never correlate that with the high suicidality rate within the police community uh, or, or the fact that, you know, the the job that they are asked to do is truly, in my opinion, probably the most impossible job, especially in modern era. A lot of them wind up with uh, what you have PTSD or their marriages break down. Yep. You know, they, they have all sorts of drinking problems, get the stress. Is this uh, something we can't understand? Yeah, it's, it's incredulous. I, I mean, like the the stressors that go on to a police officer now, uh, I couldn't imagine of what it would have been like back in the day. But now with the social media the way it is and the cameras being everywhere, it's like, you know, we, we get to see things happen almost at our fingertips at a, at a moment's notice. Yeah, um, yeah, and and to have that on top of the narrative that that the media and in my opinion irresponsibly promulgates, um, is it There's makes no their job. You can put anything you want there. You can make any comment you want on it. You know, absolutely. And I, you realize I stopped listening to all this thing. Watch so and so destroy some his other side, and then and on one of these video. I mean, it's just lots of nonsense. So this somebody's giving a normal answer to to a hostile question or some combination, and he's just he's answering us all. It's, and like even but like uh, what's his name? Um, uh, George George Floyd George, George Floyd. Okay. Right, right. And he that was a case of the officer really abusing his power. You know, sitting on just sitting like that for that is that's a bad case. Absolutely. That's a very bad case for yeah. But the other one, Jacob Blake, I look at it and I say, I saw the clip, and the police are telling him to stop. He's going back into his car, and if I was a cop, I think. Why is he got going to this guy? What has he got there? Am I, am I going to be dead in between the, before in the next few seconds? Yeah, that's the first thing you think about. What's he got in his car? Yeah, and people uh, don't. Know, so they have to think very, very quickly. Like exceptionally quick. Everything happens at a like we get we get the option to pause, to slow mo. We get the ability to dissect. Like a lot of these journalists probably look at these videos while they're having dinner, you know, or a glass of wine <laughs> yeah. or a beer. And these cops are in this moment with fractions of a second to make a decision. And sometimes that lends itself to getting it wrong. It's going to happen. Police officers are human. They're going to make mistakes and they're going to make bad decisions. The George mm-hmm. Floyd thing, I don't think I've seen any police officer or any uh, entity come out and defend the police officer in question. I don't think I've seen no, anybody no. do that. But yet... It's out of, it's out of, out of territory altogether. I mean, the guy... Yeah. He's, he's leaning on the guy. He obviously couldn't move, you know? He's under control. Yeah, it was horrible. There was there was no care for him whatsoever. There was no, uh, you know, it, it showed a complete lapse of control in the scene. And uh, and again, this is just me judging based on a video. I wasn't physically there. Uh, so I'll concede to that too. But I mean, a police officer and a first responder in general, our jobs, you know, as a paramedic, my job was a patient advocate. I was to advocate for my patient. I read that in your book where some... You get involved in the in, in family fight almost, and somebody starts yelling. Lady starts yelling at you or something. Yeah, right. And it's it's no. a really tough. It's a tough position to be in, and you have fractions of a second to make a decision and to try and de-escalate. And the the other part that I find really fascinating about the media and and the fact that journalists' job is supposed to be to investigate. Uh, in my opinion, I think police officers are mental health professionals because they deal with hundreds of thousands of calls per year, and majority of those calls are mental health related in some capacity or another. It's yeah. just we don't hear about them because they're not newsworthy because they're not they don't end in that terrible headline. But these yeah. guys deal with like at least once a shift they're going to something mental health related, whether that be somebody who's drunk or uh, somebody who's you know high or overdosed or somebody who's robbing a liquor store, whatever the case may be. I put that in one of my books as an ending. I don't want to give it away, but here's uh, uh, Suicide by Cop in one of my books, okay? Right. And I remember, aside from that, I seem to have a lot of nuts wind up in my area. Okay, excuse the expression. They used to be that this guy, uh, Nate, big guy, and you look at him, you talk to his normal, definitely starts saying that he's in a, in a, in a uh, public housing, okay, right. And he talked very articulately, but I realized he's he's talking psychotic, talking about people following him. And he was in a house down the block from my street, okay. Uh, it's just a it's just a dwelling in a way, or, or, or 
uh, funded housing of some kind. And he's, he told me he's convinced, Philby, I've got to tell you, my life was in danger because of people who are going to my room and I'm not there. And of course, you know, I knew it was, was a, something in his head. I remember one time when I came home, it's at night, he's talking to the cops. And the cop has one foot in his car. He, even he wanted to get out of there. He just is tired of listening to him, you know? And it's a sad, it's a sad thing because the guy's life was a ruin, was a wreck because he, he, you know, he couldn't get past that. Yeah, you know, and all I heard he's probably in some kind of uh, ward now or something. You know, but yeah. people have their lives are, are ruined because of this. You know, because of mental problems. And sometimes, sometimes their their families coping with them. And sometimes they, uh, most of the time, they wind up killed. Most yeah. Of the time they yeah, and I mean, mental health, and, and when you're in that bad state of mind, when you're in that, that dark place, you're not making cognitively rational decisions no, or well-thought-out no. decisions. I mean, it, you know, on a very less scale, uh, with me getting a DUI, having been a paramedic, I know the ramifications of a DUI. I, I know the realities of a DUI. I, I've seen them in 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 plethoric number, but... Because I did get a DUI, because I was drinking, it wasn't because I didn't care or I wasn't thinking about it. It's I was too busy uh, suffering and, and focusing so much on what was happening internally that the ramifications of those things didn't even enter the equation. And so I wasn't healthy enough to to deduce what should or should not be done. And that's not an excuse for what I did. There, there is no excuse for what I did. What I did acted as a catalyst for me to get the help I needed. Overwhelmed by your own situation. Yeah, it's it's more contextualizing, and I, I think context is something that's missing a lot from conversations today, uh, especially on the Canada right sites. You know, they you know, they they could disagree with Jordan Peterson. I disagree with what he writes too, but I still think he has the right to say it, and I still think he's a good well, writer. Sure. Sure. You know, like I said, if, if you think I shouldn't listen to, well, why was your argument so weak that I? I listen to him and not you. Exactly, right? Like, I'm probably going to buy this next book when it comes out. Even though I didn't like 12 Rules for Life, I'm probably going to buy this next one to to see what else is in there to see, you know. Uh, what, is, what kind of rules does he have anyways? Uh, like, a lot of them were, so he kind of repackages psychological things. So, um, you know, uh, based on a conversation with my, my previous psychologist, a lot of things that they learn throughout school or a lot of things they learn as uh, sort of, mainstays in the psychological world he just kind of rebrands them by talking about you know lobsters or talking about uh you know packing up your room or keeping your room neat in order so he he sort of brands them as though they're his own but the ideas are really not new or groundbreaking they're, they're no kind of has that idea no yeah right. well exactly right and, and you make that you know because at least you start off the day doing something right yeah, and he's sort of become a cult of personality, right? So he he's kind of become less of an actual practicing psychologist and more of a cult of personality with respect to the culture war, um, simply because he's been labeled, especially by legacy media like CBC, who never writes anything about his credentials and never writes anything about how he has openly admitted to saying he would call somebody by their preferred pronoun. He just doesn't want to be mandated to do so. And yeah, to me, that's yeah. a reasonable just, argument. Like, I'll do it, but you have to, don't make me do it. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that's a reasonable argument because I think to mandate by law or by legislation that you have to, you know, forego what you know to be true in, in the face of somebody else's sense of being, I think is just silly. Me personally, I'll call somebody by whatever pronoun or whatever thing they want. Just that out of a, a little silly question. If I'm talking to, to you, why do I have to use a pronoun? Oh, yeah, oh, true, right? Exactly. Same thing. <laughs> uh, no. I, I generally don't care. Like sometimes people ask me, do you prefer Matthew or Matt? And uh, I'm, personally, I don't care. Now, that being said, I don't live with, um, you know, with being uh, a transgendered person. I don't have that in me. So I don't know what it's what it's like to to kind of think of myself in a different light or feel like I'm in a different, should be in a different body. And I'll never invalidate that. However, those two things can exist. You know, biology can exist and transgender can exist, but you can't supersede one over the other in the name of feelings. That just, it's, it's silly. Yeah, that's a whole uh, other argument. I you know, what feel, you know, you tell people, basically it goes back to mandating what people can or cannot say because exactly, yeah. which is, once you go that route, everything you have is down the tubes anyways, you know? 
Yeah, and uh, like going to the Canada Rights site again because that's that's how you and I made the connection with one another. They always uh, the only reason I haven't walked away from that site is because there is some good knowledge on there and there is some good you know writing specific um, topics on there. But I find too recently they're posting uh, all these openings for submissions. But if you go and you take a look at the requirements, a lot of them say uh, accepting submissions from BIPOC only. Or yeah, I saw, I saw that one. Somebody posted, I think it's called Raven. I looked at it, no trans this, no this folk, that one. I thought, yeah. that's about who we want to write for you. So don't you? And, you know, once you do that, you know, I, you can have some, like I told you before, I remember there's a book called Hearts War, okay, what Pure W camp in, uh, in Nazi yeah. Germany. And one of the main characters there, who reminds him that, Flaming racist, out and out. You know, none of this uh, hate speech stuff. Look, he'll, he'll say what he wants, you in your face, and dare to do anything about it. Right. But he also throws bread to Russian prisoners of war. Russians were considered maybe a step ahead of Jews going to, to Nazi camps, but the, the life was had no value. Yeah. So to him to do that is quite a heroic act. But mm. he's also racist. So take your pick. Which is which comes first, or they both coexist? As a normal faulted human being. Yeah, you know? exactly. And it, it's funny because uh, my I I kind of disagree with uh, my previous psychologist uh, with this because I I kind of live under the microscope or or look through the prism of good people and bad people, and she says there is no such thing as good people and bad people. There are just people that do good things or bad things, and so therefore it leaves the nuance open. It leaves the gray area open, and logically I understand what she means. And I, I conceptualize it and I can I can fathom it. It I still don't necessarily agree with it. I still think there are bad people. Um, but you know, you're right in that does does that one thing now just overlap and become that person? Is he just a Nazi? Which is which takes precedence? Which takes precedence in the character? Exactly, no, like, right? Like good person, good bad person is if somebody does something bad just because he it gives him pleasure. That's a more an area of a psychopath. Okay, right. He likes doing it. Likes causing pain, and because and you don't have no more meaning to him than um, than a penny lying in the street. You know, it's nice, but I don't really care. And most people are even this talk about how we consider others. He, you know, people can do a lot of good in their lives, but you know, look at the look at McDonald. Okay, yeah, uh, yeah. Don A. Yeah, he's a he's a pretty racist person. Sure. But he also had the country going. If he if he hadn't decided to make the railway the way he did, we'd be part of the US right now. Yeah. And and again, it goes back to you know, when you read a lot of stuff about Sir John A back in his day, he was kind of considered more of a liberal uh yeah. thinking and progressive thinking person back then. It's just when we take today's standards and morals and transpose them atop. Of course, he looks like like a dirtbag and a, and a flaming racist. Of course, he does, but it was different back then. Yeah. And I'm not justifying; I'm contextualizing, and that's a big thing. Again, that's missing in conversations is context. Like I saw, I don't know whose video I saw this on. It's talking about a professor somewhere in the states asked this people, "How many of you would be against slavery if you were living in?" And says, so "They all rose, they all raised their hands." And he said, "Oh, sure." All of you would go against the current. All of you would go against the times because you're such good people. Of course, it wouldn't. You know, it'd be how you brought up, yep. you know, what the consequences of your actions would be. And, and, you know, you wouldn't think of it at all. Some did. It was a start of things. Some did think that way, but it wasn't that common. Right. That common. Exactly. And I, I mean, for me personally, I, I think the concept of, of white privilege is a racist notion. I, I think that to look at an individual and based on nothing other than their skin color alone, to deduce what their life is like and deduce what they have in society is the same racial prejudice as looking at a black person through the prism of the 1950s and 60s. I told somebody, if you look at everything through the prism of race, then you're, you're racist. A hundred percent. Yeah, a hundred percent, because that's what racism is. And yet, in today's, uh, you know, today's world, and, and especially on the Canada Rights site, the definition of racism is continually evolving and moving to fit and suit their narrative because they constantly have to move goalposts. Because once you've proven one yeah. of their things illogical, they move the goalpost back. You know, for a long time, they would just say, "Well, that's not white privilege," but they didn't have an actual definition of what white it's privilege was. The arc of somebody's life. There's so many things that go against the person. You know. 
you can have uh, your upbringing, your parents. You can have uh, experience, like your your job experience. You can just have an ability to graduate effectively, like like my experience. All sorts of things get in the way. You know, it's amazing that any anybody makes a success of anything anymore. You know, and oh, so yeah. it's not. You know, so you talk about where, well, where exactly did it get you or me or anybody? You know, we all have things to go through. Some people have race. Okay, so I overcome it. You know, and these all sorts of things that go on in people's lives. Yeah. And say that the race is the only thing. Well, then you're basically you're you're going. You're saying nothing we, we do can be of any value because you can't change how you were born. Exactly, and I mean, if we if we lose Canada specific and we look at the indigenous population. There are some some significant challenges facing those those demographic of people, like some really significant challenges, including, you know, um, transgenerational trauma. Right, like there's some mm-hmm. significant hurdles. But to to have an indigenous person born and then just tell them that they are a victim of something, uh, to me, that's just a dangerous mindset to instill in somebody. If you if you instill more so, um, you know, the the ethos of merit. I think that that's much more, uh, you know, uh, an acceptable methodology of, of trying to get somebody to break free of the chains of, you know, societal oppression, as opposed to sitting there and just saying, you, you, can't, you can't succeed because society is racist. I, I think it's a dangerous mindset to be, to be put in. I'm doing this in one of my writing jobs, and it's, it's uh, right about meritocracy and whether it's a good or bad thing. And I was looking, I thought, first, I can barely understand the, the idea. No, I do understand. Okay, they, telling people that they can become better, but improve a lot by hard work, and they'll get somewhere. And then this is Professor Michael Selden, I think his name says, well, it's not true because all sorts of things get in the way. Well, what else do you have? Yeah. If you don't have hard work and getting you somewhere, well, what, what else do you do people aspire to, to use? Yeah. You know, if you're not born in a certain family, or you're not born with a with a ten-figure bank account, work is all you have. Okay. Yeah. And some people like it. It's an application. Is a lot of hard work, and it is a bit of luck. But like they say, my sure. luck is preparation, preparation, meeting opportunity. You seize a chance, or sometimes you make a chance, make a chance for yourself. You know. Yeah. And and again, context and nuance come into come into play too, because you know, working hard doesn't mean you're going to achieve everything you want. You know, if I no. want if I want to be a singer, uh, just because I want it and I sing a lot doesn't mean I'm going to be a singer. Because when I sing in the shower, Simon Cowell comes in and he says, "Oh, it's a no for me." <laughs> like, it's uh, it's that's just my reality. It's just not going to happen. But that doesn't mean that the world is against what, me. What, 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 who else? What else is there? Who else is on the panel? They come into your shower too, or is not not this story? Uh, I wouldn't be that lucky. No, it's just Simon Cowell. <laughs> <laughs> you ever see this movie whiplash i did yes it's a great movie oh wow yeah that is, i think like that's what it takes you know it's incredible you up with a guy like that but you know the guy was it starts off nice and says you bet it basically it drives him to suicide yeah know? yeah it's incredible like that movie i found myself because i didn't know what the movie was about i just kind of saw it and i like milo um I can't remember his name now or miles, uh, miles something. Anyway, uh, the main actor in the show, I really, I really like him. And, uh, he, so I started watching it. not really knowing what it was about. And I found myself inching closer to the edge of the couch, the longer the movie went on and kind of going, Holy crap, man. Like this movie is intense. It's really intense. And the guy throwing things at him. Yeah. His, his knuckles are bloody from practice and still not enough. Yeah. Still- yeah, it's it's crazy, man. And I, it's and, and the crappy part is, uh, you know, bringing up like that movie or the, or the you know, the, the work ethic of that movie or that character. To have that conversation on the Canada Right site is borderline impossible because they just view through the prism of... Of race and of socioeconomic perception. Yes, yes, because only which fans pursued. But yeah. you know, people pursue all sorts of things. Not everybody has a perfect. Even people who have money, they don't always make enough, often they don't. Yeah, because it's easy. Yeah, and you, know, you just have to take it as a lesson in human experience. You no, know, this yep. person went through all sorts of hell and misery with this teacher. But what happened at the end? Then is did he make it as a professional musician, or did he, or did he work in a dry cleaner or something like that? I I think they kind of left it open, like ambiguous. I think, 
Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. I think the movie ended in an ambiguous sort of way where you have to kind of decide where you think things went. Um it's uh it's 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 a great story. I I wish I don't know if it's a true story or not, but it's it's an incredible story. I think it is. I think I'm not sure, but it's quite a story, a human experience of what coaches are really like. Yeah, like um, Scotty Bowman. Okay, oh, it wasn't yeah. as as that, but his players just didn't like him. Yeah, you know. Oh yeah, like he, like he wants to uh, going to the playoffs, and he told the, the press, "Well, I think that I think in Chicago, they're going up against Chicago a lot." They're not better scorers than us, you know, but they were furious at him. Yeah. But uh, he won a lot of cups. You know, a yeah. lot of cups. He's an interesting character, anyways. They all, they all were like that. Yeah. All Torts, of- Torts, the same thing. Tortorella, he's uh, he's not yeah. really, he well, he's either very loved by the players or hated by the players. There really is no middle ground with, yeah. with people that have yeah. come come out and talked about him as, a, as an individual. There's really no no gray area. They either like him or they hate him. Yeah, there are like, some people. Motivators are like that, you know. Yeah. Remember this? You remember too young to remember when John Ferguson played the Canadians in the early '60s? Okay. He wasn't a he wasn't a coach, but he is an enforcer. He has he's decent hand to the puck, but he's known to the, he's a he, he's, he fought. And they say he once tried to get this guy Pete Mahovlich to uh, use his size more to put throw his weight around, and he used he's. He told, he told him to be a, more of a, not a puppy dog, but a bulldog. And apparently he'd follow him around the rink and practice saying, bow, wow, bow, wow. He'd make fun of him all the time. And it worked. He came, Howell became a good player. Yeah. Ferguson, apparently he, he quit because he's afraid he'd kill somebody with his fist. So, you know, so <laughs> you have all those people out there. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's funny, like talking about that kind of work ethic, um, that can that can sort of translate into, into writing too, because uh, I mean, yeah. as I'm sure you know, uh, trying to get your work out there is one thing, but then trying to get people to read it and trying to get it to grow is another thing. It it's takes a lot right. of tenacity. It takes a lot of really hard, gritty work to stand out amidst the the clatter of words that are out there. It's hard. I mean, I, I try that. Uh, I've been writing this thing for a while. The three books, four, no, then I started rewriting them. Yeah. And yeah. it's a different story. It's uh, A lot of it is different. Yeah. You know, the context, the Jewish context, it's a make, a make up a new a species of paranormal being. But then you have to find, well, is it too different to be successful? And I, I sort of described it as a, what's the best way to describe it? A dark Jewish form of the 60s uh, comedy uh, Bewitched, okay? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this one people die and it's not that funny. And it's, it's, it's a lot racier than that, that's for sure, you know? Right, yeah. And, um, so I'm trying, I'm rewriting it. I might be stuck with doing it on my own because it's such a hard genre to place. You know, it's, it's just Orthodox Judaism and you have the outside spanking lesbian. So it's a bit of a mix. I told you kind of in there. Yeah, yeah. So, it's, <laughs> so it's a hard, uh, it's how do you place, how do you market this thing, Philip? Who, who's going to buy this thing? And I say, I have no idea. I, no I idea. don't know. <laughs> my friends have bought it, but they know they don't read it. And now it's just, it's yeah. been so much. Also, you know, it's having fun with it anyway. So I got that much to it. Yeah, and like even if you have more of a common, um, uh, like common sort of multiple genre. So like I wrote a kids book, and uh, yeah. I, I've handed it out since August. I've handed it out to a bunch of different um, publications, yeah. and I've I've had three, four, sorry, four come back to me saying yes, we will publish this, but it's a hybrid deal, so they want me to pay up front, and I I don't really want. Yeah. Yeah, right. I don't really want to do that because they're like the way they make their money is off of me. They really have no real drive to make my book sell, really. So yeah, that, I found my first publisher also. They they don't put money in it. That is, they just it just sits there, and you're you're sort of handicapped because you can't you can't give it away. You no, know, the price is too high, and the, you can a lot of things you can't do. And the publisher won't take a chance on you. So there's there's no point of being yeah talking to. Them. And even even in my situation with a medic's mind. I pretty much have to do a lot of my own uh, publication work, right? A lot of my own publicity stuff because uh, with having a smaller publisher uh, that just migrates from project to project to project, um, I'm left. Will they help you out with it? Sorry? 
Do they help you out with the marketing anyway? Uh, some like sometimes, not so much anymore. Um, they kind of did a couple of things here and there. They sent some stuff out, but it's more of like a set it and forget it kind of thing. At least it's how it feels. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I'm left with kind of doing it on my own. Like, you know, uh, my publisher recently just sent me three boxes of books, which kind of wow. gives me the feeling they've sort of just given up on on getting that book out there. Here's some books, you know, I just want them off my uh, off my shelf. Here you go. You can kind of do do what you need to. Yeah, who to give it away to, though? Well, exactly, right? And that's the, that's the kind of disappointing part. So, like, even though, I, you know, even though I was technically – um, told that you know traditional published and everything it, it feels it feels more like a hybrid without having to put money up front right is kind of how it feels yeah, and, yeah. and the industry today is so difficult and I've had conversations with my publisher about how the industry has changed and how the industry is very difficult and and even gone through a, a market change in between uh, like five years to now it's it's completely different Penguin bought up a random house recently, you know? Exactly, right? Penguin Random House. They they got bought up. And I guess from what uh, my publisher was saying that, you know, I'm doing air quotes, traditional publishing generally gives you money up front for your work. However, it's only the big five publishers that are really willing to do that. But you exactly. can't submit. You they, can't. They go with people who have a record. Exactly, people yeah. You, you can't. Or, uh, exactly. Or figures or... or and politicians just getting out of jail, you know, that sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you can't even submit without an agent. And no, no. They want the, very few of them will, will take this without an agent because they, they, they don't want any, The truth is, you do need an agent because they'll yeah. get you, you know, they may not have the context. They know how to talk to people, who's looking for what you have. Right. And uh, I'm at a loss. <laughs> I'm, I'm having a bit of a strategy in t- trying to enter more contests. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe the something, you know, a bit of a break here and there. Yeah. You know, uh, and the strike the right chord with it. You know, the right description of the book. You know, I'm, I'm not going to say it again. Okay. It's t- it's tough, man. It's it's really hard. But like, again, that comes back to to the tenacity and the you know, kind of just what what to do with it, right? It's easy to get defeated and it's easy to feel deflated because uh, yeah. especially when you get those rejection letters. Rejection letters suck. Um, I, I, I wrote a piece back in the summer and I submitted it and, uh, it was rejected, but I got an email saying, Hey, we've rejected this piece only because we feel it doesn't fit for what we're currently, you know, writing in the magazine. Thanks a lot. (laughs) Yeah. But they're like, however, we'd like you to submit a piece for this contest that we're having. We're going to waive the entry fee. And I was like, Oh, sweet. And the funniest part was I looked at the contest and it was to write about why black lives matter is such an important movement. Okay. And, and I was like, well, what if I'm at odds with it? What if I don't think that the movement is is so much as important as 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 much as, you know, just having honest dialogue is? And so I wrote that and they just ignored my email. They just completely. And I was like, OK, well, that's great. That's great. Yeah. You, know, you can't go against what you believe, you know? Yeah. And yeah. I'm like, and I refuse to. Right. I told uh, I told my publisher, too, when it came to the book stuff, I said, I flat out refuse to be interviewed by the CBC. Now you can talk to the CBC. You can talk about my book with the CBC. I just refuse to have any dealings with them whatsoever. I just won't do it. And although I know that it would be great publicity if they did come after me and say, Hey, we want to talk about your book. I just can't do it. I, I, I have so many moral and ideological objections towards the CBC that I just can't force myself to do it. And that's rightly or wrongly, you know. Braver man than me, Matthew. Braver man. <laughs> <laughs> I say, when, when, now, I'll be, I can be in the shower. I'll be there in five, five, four minutes, four minutes. <laughs> no, I can't, man. I just, it's just one of those things. It, like, same thing with the, the CBC writing contests, right? Because if you look at the, at least I found some commonalities between all the finalists. Yeah. amidst all the genres i'm not saying that all the winners or all the finalists or whatever are are not valid and not warranted like i've read some incredibly moving pieces um based on those cbc articles or based on the cbc uh literary awards and winners um so it's not you know i don't mean to try and invalidate all of them because there are some incredibly moving pieces that i've read on there Uh, i stopped reading them you know i thought it's true to (laughs) I go, what, what can I learn from it? You know, I, I try, yeah. I write a lot. I submit a lot. You know, I do my writing job on the side and read writing my own books. I figured 
I really, I can try my best. I can ask some once in a while somebody give me a good insight on what I'm doing right and what I'm doing wrong. But I can't be another writer, you know. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. I, some say, Phil, stop writing. You don't read. No, <laughs> like, uh, no. But, but what I write about, I write next what a bit about uh, the own stories in dark muse, a bit about uh, Orthodox Judaism, a bit. I'm going to visit a Gary, but I'm not myself. Right. And some about uh, being an outsider, sort of. I know, you know, and. Um, some is about about rough sex also, which is vaguely familiar with it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. And how people it's not as much it's not a, it goes into the psychology of it. Right. Why people are outsiders and what what do you want what do you belong to? Do you want to be you know, do you keep being who you are and have a select group of people, or you say, Oh, mind join a larger group kind of because I want to fit in. That's you know truth is if I had a change I might not be doing it when done the paranormal I want like writing the human aspect of it I don't like writing a whole world around this I want to talk about people trying to fit into society the best they can you know yeah no absolutely yeah yeah well so with your with your book with Dark Muse I remember uh you're talking uh we talked last time but the audio got uh mixed up or screwed up on my thing uh, you are writing a sequel, right? And you, you or you have written a sequel, and you're perfecting. I, I, there's a first book which introduces, just throws the readers into the deep end, and tell them what's going on. Yeah. The second one, I explain a bit of it. Right. And this sequel. The third book is largely how I, how the whole thing starts. Right. So you know the biblical version of creation and the Garden of Eden, and um, now oh. what the what what the what I how I rewrote the muse. To be a Jewish story, I took I ripped it off from the Greeks. My friend George down the block might not know know about it yet, but anyways, and uh, I describe it as a, as a Jewish story. Basically, a, a, I turn the idea of an angel on its head. Not so much a helpful thing. It's, you know, it's more they're here for a job, and after the job, they're they're clear to do what they want. But it's a harsh position. Yeah, they it would fit into your book in a way. You have a part in your story towards the end where you wrote a farewell letter to your uh, darker side, your addiction, okay? Yeah. And and here, the muse is that addiction. So they help you reach out high to create what you want to create, to write what you want to write, but you get hooked on it. And that drives person into depression. The that, the highest and lowest get too much and they burn out and crash. Yeah. That's, about, that's what they have to do. And it's sort of taken from them a creative manic. Right. And so that the some of them become human. One person the buy the hero, the one they start largely human. She hates doing it. She has, she can't stand when people uh, kill themselves. And there's another one, Lee, who's her uh, her friend, her mentor, her pretty good buddy. And she doesn't have any problems at all. And she has to think for buy and they enter uh, a steamy relationship, shall we say. And that's the choice. You go with somebody who will never judge you and understand you perfectly, but you're really afraid of them. You know, you get like, or you just dump it all and uh, you try to control what you have to do and join the larger society, basically. Right, and right. In a nutshell, it's a pretty big nutshell. You know, that's what it's about. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to it, man, because I, I really enjoyed the first uh, the first book that you sent me. Um, you know, I, I, I had a great uh, great time reading it. It was one of those things that I started reading, again, not really knowing outside of what I had read on, on the Canada Rights site and outside of the th- stuff that we had kind of briefly talked about, not really knowing truly what it was about. But uh, it was the characters that I kind of, you know, really drew me in. And it was the nuances of those characters and the complexity of those characters that drew me in. So yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward true. to that's it. Yeah. Make them complex. Make them contradictory. Yeah, right. And that's the thing, right? Because if you get slapped with with juxtaposition, uh, it really kind of challenges you. Not not challenges you in a bad way when it comes to reading, but challenges you with respect to what you think is is really happening or who you think this person is as you're reading about them. Which uh, I think you did a brilliant job of doing that. I think it was great. You know, in the way it goes back to what you said earlier on about your uh, DOI. Uh, Security, you know, you know what you're doing, yeah, but somehow you're overcome by what you're going through, right? Overcome what you're when you, you do it, and after you regret it, and, and you, you pick yourself up and you start over again, you know, yeah, like you know, once so after my DUI, um, you know, in the days following, um, when it came to going to court, um, 
I knew that I was not going to get a lawyer. I knew that I wasn't going to try and fight it. I knew that I wasn't going to uh, do any of that route. And so I stood before the judge and I kind of explained, um, you know, A, apologizing for my actions and then B, um, contextualizing why I was standing before her the way I was um, and and sort of saying, you know, I, I know better. This wasn't apathy towards society or anything. And so I, I explained myself and she said that um, there's only a few things that she can do uh, with respect to minimums and everything. But she said, uh, you know, if, if you plead guilty, unfortunately, it's a criminal record and, you know, you have to go through this whole thing. She's like, however, yeah. if you ever need a letter of reference, you can reach wow. out to me and I will happily write you a letter. Wow. And um, for me, that was, it was a big thing for me to just A, own what I did and and move on, you know, through it. Um, that turning it was, yeah. I mean, I still don't have my driver's license because I, I sort of gave myself a, a self-imposed prison sentence. Um, mm-hmm. So I could have got my license back about three years ago, uh, but I just didn't feel, uh, I didn't feel worthy of driving. I felt, you know, I still beat myself up over it quite a bit. I'm pretty good at at uh, self-flagellation, uh, rightly or wrongly. Um but I am I am now in the process of of starting to get it back. You know, I've I've got two years sobriety now. Uh, my relationship and the way I look at alcohol and my progress in therapy and the way I look at the world and myself within that world is is different. So I've started to kind of give myself a bit of a a break with respect to should I drive again, and um, so I've started that process. But uh, you know, a lot of it is just ownership. I think. In, in in life, in everything that we do. I think a lot of it is just ownership, take it, right? You know, whether you've done good or bad, own it and learn from it either way. It's hard. Yeah, yeah, that, that is the idea. That's the idea of changing your way. It's, it's, it is exceedingly difficult. It certainly can be, yeah. You know, especially when you run up into some um, some obduridity and some uh, intoxication, that, that can definitely make it uh, even more challenging to try and navigate change but uh you know um i i think if you open yourself up to to the uh, concept of change and the concept of ebb and flow when it comes to life um i think then and only then you you can absorb a lot more of of what's going to happen what is happening around you yeah you know it's since i have a book here by somebody else uh elisa smith it's what called girl walks out of a bar and this woman, I met her at a press conference of four, almost four and a half years ago. And she's really addicted. She's a lawyer. She could afford cocaine, wine, went through gallons of this stuff. And one day she decided, I've had enough. And she checked herself into rehab for a short while, checked herself out. And bit by bit, you know, you're hanging on by your finger, hoping she makes it. And eventually she does make it. She doesn't have a backward step. Again, you know, she realized she was abandoning her family and her, you know, her career and everything. People saw what she realized after people saw what she was doing, you know, with all the breath and everything else. And it's a long struggle. It was a long struggle, but apparently she made it. Yeah, which is which is incredible. I mean, stories like that are uh, pretty profound, I find. Um, you know, I've read Thurn Fleury's book. Uh, he's got two, but, um, yeah, you know, uh, I, I found... Um, a lot of what what he went through and a lot of what he had said it wasn't so much the writing that was super impactful it was the story that was impactful yeah yeah, yeah. A, a human story honestly told absolutely know? yeah and and i find uh, watching him uh give public speeches and stuff like that he is just himself he's just who he is and i find that those people that can be that raw and that honest good or bad um, generally tell the most impactful stories for me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, if people look for that, that human element in any story of writing or, or listening to a, to a presentation, you look for, this is an honest person. He has something I can relate to. Okay? Yeah. Something I can relate to. Yeah. Well, Philip, man, I'm looking forward to reading your next book. Um, I will uh, definitely be putting this this podcast out here probably today or tomorrow. Uh, I'm going to work Great. on the audio, but I'll get it out there today or tomorrow and I'll send you the link. Okay, great. Um, but yeah, I uh, I had a great time and uh yeah, thanks for thanks for coming on the show and, and talking to me. Hey, my pleasure, man. Anytime. Take care. You too, brother. Take care, be safe and be well. You too.
Hi, and thanks for listening to this episode of A Medic's Mind. If you liked what you heard and enjoy my content, please consider donating today at amedicsmind.com slash donate. That's amedicsmind.com slash donate. At the end of each week, I will thank all contributors that help me grow and evolve on this platform. And if you can't donate, not to worry. I understand. But please feel free to like and share my work so that I can continue to improve and reach more people. Because at the end of the day, connection is what matters. All the best. Be well, be safe, and above all else, keep talking to each other.